You are absolutely marvelous and wonderful and good. And we delight in you this morning. We praise your name. For there is no other. There is no other. And Holy Spirit, I ask now as the one who reveals Christ, who is our counselor, teacher, and helper, that you will tear down any Molech, any Chemosh, any Baal, any Asherah that sets itself up against King Jesus this morning. Whether it be a Chemosh of our own making, an idol we've set up that receives our funds and our affection and our time, would you destroy it this morning and exalt the King of the universe? Would you make that happen now? We are dependent on you to do that. So we ask you to do it, that Jesus would be exalted, your name be made great, and that we would find our greatest hope in you. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Three Rivers Church. Let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 13. We're going to be continuing in our little series called 16 Verses, where we're looking at 16 milestones, 16 passages that point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ out of the Old Testament. And before we do that, uh, before we get to 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, I've been having the Lord just impress upon me uh, for the past few weeks, Colossians 1, 28 to 29. You don't need to go there. You stay in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, but, but I wanna, I wanna address you here. Why do we preach? Why do we teach? Why do we emphasize the things we emphasize? And the reason is, is because, A, the scriptures tell us to. This is our manual. We obey the scriptures. We do what God tells us to do. And in His Word, He teaches us that we are all, outside of Christ, we're dead. We're born into this world, dead in our sins. The rebellion has killed us. It has destroyed us so that every single person born onto the face of this planet is born dead. Their hearts are dead toward God. Sin is written, as the Scriptures teach us in Jeremiah 17, is written on our hearts with a pen of iron. We're dead toward God. And in God's grace, when the gospel enters ears, it has the power to resurrect dead hearts to life. So when we proclaim Jesus, that has power to go into ears, down into souls, and wreck them for the sake of Christ. To take them from death to life. To take them from not knowing to knowing. But once we come into Christ, He's not finished with us yet. We are to grow up into Christ who is the head. Which is why we emphasize in your radical life groups this fivefold ministry of these giftings that the Spirit has given to His church. That we would speak to one another and lift each other up and grow each other through our words and the teaching of the Scriptures into Christ who is the head. And so when we preach, our, our aim is not to throw more information on you, which is why I've been encouraging you, don't look at the notes when I'm preaching. I have them there for you. They're up, but they're not there for you to be looking at your device and continue to be chained to a piece of technology. They're there for you to look at later. You can listen to the podcast. Go back. If you want to dig, you can dig. Right now, the goal is for you to meet the king of the universe as he is revealed in the pages of the scriptures. And in that moment, he does more than information gain. He does transformation. Because the reality is that information gain apart from transformation is worthless. <coughs> we have more information available to us today as Christians than ever we have in the history of the world. And we do less with it than ever in the history of the world. And so, when we stand here and we teach, we write blogs, 
when we have Radical Life Group, and we're looking at the text that we've been preaching on, and we're studying through, and we're practicing that five-fold ministry, Colossians 1, 28 and 29 is the aim. Him we proclaim. Who's Him? Jesus. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone... And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So we warn and we teach in all wisdom. Why? That we may present you because your, your pastor's task, and, and by the way, your task when you're discipling people, because, because we, our job, our job is not to replace Jesus for you. We are to lead you to Christ. You are to follow Jesus. We are to preach the word and he transforms you. And you make disciples and you lead those people. Right? You teach them. And the goal is to present them mature in Christ. Because one day you're going to stand before Jesus. I'm going to stand before Jesus and give an account for what I did with this time. And the goal is to present you to Christ mature. That I would, that I would kneel before the king of the universe and say, you gave me this little thing. And I did my very best with it to grow it and them up into you. That they would see you and know you and walk with you. And you will do the same thing. And so we want to present you mature in Christ. And Paul says, for this I toil. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So the reality is we are here not for you to gain more information, but to put Jesus in front of you that you may grow up into Christ, who is your head, who is your chief shepherd, who is your senior pastor, who is my senior pastor, that we may know him and experience him in the power of his resurrection and fellowshipping with him in his suffering. And so as we study through these 16 verses, these signposts that point us to Jesus, again, the goal is not more information. The goal is that you would see and savor Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, 2 Samuel chapter 7, <coughs> verse 12 and 13. Tell us this. When your days are fulfilled, now this is, this is God speaking to David, right? David is our, our signpost today. Right? Just going to say this. When we're looking at David, and if you're reading the book along with this that we, we offered to you to have, um, I'm, I'm doing more than the books got there, okay? I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I'm, I'm not preaching a book because that's cheating. That's called plagiarism. And as a former educator, I don't plagiarize. I don't cheat. I don't steal people's work. And I footnote all the time. You see footnotes in my stuff because I want you to know where it came from, okay? So, so we're not, we're going to do more than is in these two verses, okay? So I just want you to understand that. We're topical for a little while. We're going to go back and study through the book of Genesis where we'll be more expositional, but we're going to topically study this in an expositional fashion, if that makes sense, right? So I'm going to give you more than is in these two verses, but these are really the capstone to help us, help us get our, our mind and our heart around David as a signpost to point us to Jesus, okay? So 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up after, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God created a kingdom and he's the king. He made human beings in his image to rule in his kingdom under his authority by his power. But Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to the twin devastation, uh, twin devastators of sin and death. 
But God in His good grace promised to defeat the serpent through the offspring of the woman who is the offspring of Abraham. And so through Abraham's family, and specifically Judah's royal offspring, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. David is probably the clearest type in the Bible that we see pointing us to Jesus. All through the Old Testament, you're going to see dead ends and bridges. A dead end is a type. Now, you guys know what a prototype is? Right? If you're in the tech world or you're just in, in the world, period, I like trucks. I like guns. I like things like that, right? And so every now and then on, on certain, certain vehicles, websites, they have a prototype of what is to come. And so they make one and they're testing it out in, in, in that phase of being a prototype, you know, proto first type, right? The first type. Meaning we're testing this one and it's got some kinks in it. We're working them out so that when we get them worked out. We're going to have the one. But for now, you just see the Ram 1500, 5.7 liter Hemi, right? And, and with, with this really new cool stuff going on in it, but this is just the prototype and, and, and we're going to work it out, but, but the one is coming. And that prototype causes us to see what, what can be, what will be, and it creates joy and excitement, and we're fired up to get it. Some of you guys, we're, we're Apple snobs, right? And, and the new prototype of the new iPhone is starting to show up on the interwebs. And some of you guys are so fired up about it, you, your, your, your browser just apple.com forward slash forward slash or Wall Street Journal. You're looking at the cool new prototype, and they're working out the kinks. And that prototype is to point you to the one that is to come. In similar fashion, David is a prototype. He's a type. He is one that's full of kinks. He's full of problems. But nonetheless, he is one that points us to the one who will be the ultimate serpent crusher. And perhaps David is the clearest prototype in the Bible. And some of these types are dead ends. Some of them are bridges. Dead ends are types that lead us to a certain point And they get cut off and we realize, boy, that was really not all that great. Who's going to be better? And then bridges are ones that take us all the way over the ravine and get us to the other side. And we go, wow, I really, really want that to happen. David serves as a dead end and a bridge as a type in multiple places. We're going to look at some of those today. So in the life of David, what do we see? How is David a prototype? How does he point us to Jesus? We've got several points and we're going to come with some ways we can obey and apply our text today. Number one. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, that David loves God, and God loves David. And God and David have a very, very special relationship. Now what sets up verse 12 and 13, the passage we just read, is this desire that David has to build God a house. In verse 1 to 3, we read, When the king lived in his house and had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. And Nathan said, Go do all's in your heart for the Lord's with you. God's concern, or David's concern in this instance was, I have a house. I have a house made with cedar. And cedar was a big deal. And they got cedar from up north and other kingdoms. And they shipped it down. And, and David was building his own place. And David was convicted in heart and said, I have a house, but the ark dwells in a tent. This is not the best case scenario. David loved God. David had a special relationship with God. 
As a matter of fact, we see this special relationship lived out in David's life because David wrote many of the Psalms you have in the middle of your Bible. If you would, look over with me at Psalm chapter 18. Verse 1 through 3, and listen to David's words. You read the Psalms and you see these songs that David wrote about the Lord. And you see how God loves David. You realize David and the Lord have a special relationship that is key for us to understand. David says here in Psalm 18:1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. David writes this stuff all over the Psalms. I love the Lord. He's not ashamed of the way he loves God and he tells it and he writes it. This warrior king has a special relationship with God. God has a special relationship with David. As a matter of fact, we read in Acts chapter 13 when Stephen, or Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is recounting the story of Israel's history to the Sanhedrin before they stone him to death. And he speaks about David as David being a man after God's own heart. God loved David. God protected David. God took care of David. God disciplined David like a son. What we see in God's relationship to David and David's relationship to God is a bridge that takes us over to see how God... The Father and God the Son have this special relationship. As a matter of fact, we read in John chapter 17 that the Father, God loves the Son, Jesus, and the Son loves the Father in perfect obedience. And the way David loved God and God loved David is to point us to the one who will be the ultimate serpent crusher. David points us to this special relationship that God has with his son, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, you read all through 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. You read the Psalms. You discover God treated David just like a son. Loved him like a son. David loved God like a father. And that prepares us for this special relationship we see with Jesus and the Father. Because what does Jesus do? Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven. What did Jesus Refer to himself as the Son. This God, the Father, and Son relationship between David and God points us to the one who would come and share that similar relationship. David was a bridge that pointed us to the one who was to come. Jesus loved the Father. The Father loved the Son. And here's our little good news point. The Father's love for the Son and the Son's obedient love for the Father leads to God's love being poured out to man as Jesus goes to the cross to take the Father's wrath for us. Now, in this way also, David is a dead end. He's a bridge that takes us over and sees that God loves the Son and the Son loves God and there's a special relationship. But it it's also a dead end because David fails also. We come to David, gosh, David had a special relationship with God. And David loved God, but David stopped obeying at a certain point. David stopped listening at a certain point. David sinned at a certain point. And so he's a dead end and we come and go, Jesus, there has to be one better. And we hop over to Jesus and we see how Jesus is the Son who loves the Father perfectly and the Father loves the Son. But Jesus never disobeys. He obeys perfectly. And in his obedience, he goes to the cross as the perfect Son to die in the place of sinners that those sinners may know the Father. And check this out. 
we get to be sons of God too if we're in Christ. We get to call God Father. And we are adopted as sons. Second thing we see in the life of David is that David here in our second Samuel passage obeys God. But later, David will not obey God. He falters later. David obeys God here because in the night, Nathan has a dream. God speaks to him and says, David is not to build me a house. There's going to be one after him who will build me a house, but it's not David. And so David obeys here, but he's going to falter later. And in this way, David is also a dead end. David obeys, but then he stops obeying because later in his life, as you've heard me say before, he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, weak leadership. And David allows these things to, to roll into his life. And he suffers discipline for them from God because God's a good father and he disciplines his son. And so as a dead end, we look, we look at David and we wonder, who's going to do better? Enter Jesus. Where David obeyed for a while but faltered later, Jesus obeys perfectly. In John chapter 5, verse 19, we read this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. But only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. David disobeys at certain points. Jesus never disobeys. Jesus never, ever disobeys the father. Whatever the father says, Jesus says. Whatever the father does, Jesus does. David, not so much. Now this is a little key point here. I'm going to stop here and I want to say something to you. Very important. As you read your Old Testament and you're studying your Old Testament, it is key... That you have gospel eyes with which you interpret everything you read. Let's say this to you. I'm quoting Tim Keller. It's not in the notes, and, and and it's not an exact quote. It's more of a paraphrase. You may have heard of Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City, Presbyterian guy. The only thing he does wrong is baptize infants. But God bless him. It's okay. Good guy. If he were just a Baptist, he would be there, but he's not. But he's a good guy. Love Tim Keller. Keller writes. When we're looking at the Old Testament with gospel lens, sometimes it is key. That we, with the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ implanted and written in our souls, we read the Old Testament and see the gospel instinctually. Now this is important, and I'm going to just say this to you. This is going to require disciplined reading on your part. You can't be a follower of Jesus and never read and study the manual. You just can't be. It's not going to be possible. Life's too hard. The challenge is too deep. The gulf's too wide. And the reality is, and we're going to get to this in some of these points of application in just a moment. We need the grand encouragement and hope of the Scriptures as we read these stories. And we don't moralize them. We see them with the lens of the Gospel and recognize God is able. And as He worked in them, He works in me. So as we read these stories, we look and we, we see patterns, we see bridges, we see concepts. And instinctually, we start to recognize God is at work in history to point us to Jesus. Because the reality is, Him we proclaim. We're not proclaiming David. I want you to hear today, we're not proclaiming David. David is a type, he's a prototype. And he's one that failed us miserably. And we're going to come to the end of David's life and look over the gulf and see the one who made the way across the one who made the way, Jesus, the one to whom David is pointing. And so the good news is your Old Testament's full of those. 
Let's throw one on you free right here. Not on your notes. Hezekiah. Right? You ever read about that king, Hezekiah? Hezekiah recognized that, that the people hadn't been worshiping the Lord properly. found a copy of the manual hidden in the wall of the temple. Isn't that crazy? In the temple was a copy of the manual and they hadn't been reading it. Kind of like ours on our shelves, right? And he began reading it and his heart was pricked deeply because he recognized that what God said to do, we're not doing So what does he do? He sends a proclamation throughout the land. We need to come and start doing this stuff. And everybody was moved in heart to obey. And what did they do? They started coming to obey the Passover and, and, and recognize it again. And what you read in the story in Second Chronicles 30 is that they came, but it even says, it says this explicitly, though not according to the law. So Hezekiah prayed. And here's what he prayed. May the good Lord pardon all those who set their hearts to worship you. And the Lord heard his prayer and he healed the people. If you can't smell, sniff the gospel in that, your sniffer's broken, your eyes are blind. Because they didn't keep the law. They were guilty. They were wrong, yet they came to the Lord with a heart full of faith, trusting Jesus. And there was a mediator who prayed for them and God pardoned their iniquity. Do you see it? You smell it? There's one who went before you because you are guilty. And Him being perfect laid His life down. He comes to the Father on your behalf. And He says, Father, pardon them because they're mine. And the Father hears His prayer and He pardons the sin of those who are His. Jesus. Right? So what I want you to do as we study through this is look for these little indicators, these arrows that point you to Jesus because that's exactly what they are. David being a dead end in obedience leaves us going, we need one who will obey. Who will it be? Jesus. He perfectly obeys the Father. He does everything the Father says. Here's the discipleship point for you. You ready for this? If Jesus' life was to obey the Father, how much more us? Jesus sought to live His life in obedience to the Father. And here's a little Trinitarian theology for you. Jesus is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, not three gods, one God, three distinct persons, yet equally God. And God the Son sought to be obedient to God the Father. And God the Spirit is obedient to the Son who is obedient to the Father. If that's how the Trinity lives, how much more us? Jesus perfectly obeys. And as the one who perfectly obeys, He is able to purchase our salvation And here's the beautiful part of Jesus' obedience. You ready? When you come to faith in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is not just Jesus' righteousness given to you. It's Jesus' obedience given to you as well. Which is beautiful because not only do we get counted as right, we get counted as obedient. And check it out, not done yet. You will obey because His obedience has been given to you. This is why there's no such thing as disobedient Christians. This is why Jesus says things like Matthew 25 about sheep and goats. Matthew 7 about houses that stand and houses that fall. There's no such thing as disobedient followers of Jesus. Because Jesus' obedience has been given to us, we obey. Because we're counted as having been obedient. David couldn't pull that off. Why? Because he was disobedient. So we come to David and go, boy, you were really good except for that. 
We come to Jesus, we don't do that. We say, Jesus, you're really good, and there's no flaws. He did it. Third observation we see here is that God promises David a forever kingdom. And in this way, David is a bridge to lead us to Jesus. And this is in verse 13. In 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name. Now, God is referencing Solomon will be the one who will build the house. And boy, Solomon messes that up real good, doesn't he? He's obedient for a while. And he has like 700 wives who worship different gods. And he builds them little temples all over the city so they can worship their false god. And the Lord takes the kingdom away from Solomon except for one tribe, Judah, later and gives it to Jeroboam. And that causes deep friction later, right? But God promises David here, I'm going to give you a kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promises David a forever kingdom here. And in this way, David is a bridge to lead us to Jesus. See, how do we know this? In Matthew chapter 1, there's this little thing called a genealogy. Now, I'm not going to ask for volunteers, but if I were to ask the question, how many people love reading the genealogies in the Bible? Maybe one of you who's maybe nerdy and snobby and thinks you're better than everybody else in the room would raise your hand and say, yes, I love the genealogies. I can pronounce all the names and I'm just an amazing scholar. But for most of us, we... we Potentially skip the genealogies. little note for you. You know how a Muslim knows that something's real and historical? Genealogies. Little, little other nugget of Muslim evangelism. There's a lack of respect for the way we don't beautify our genealogies. You know, in some Muslim literature, genealogies are written in the shape of an actual tree. So they write them out and the lines are shaped at different lengths so that when you get to the end of the genealogy, it's actually a family tree. It's pretty beautiful for people who aren't in the truth. Genealogies are very important. And we don't find them very important because... The great reality is for our worldview, many of us, are we breathe the air of naturalism. And if it's not pragmatic, we don't care about it. If there's not five easy steps to get better at the end of it, we don't think it's very important. But the reality is God inspired genealogies because they tell a story. They tell something very important. If you look at this genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2 through 16, you'll notice in verse 6... David barely gets an honorable mention. Why? I mean, David's just one name among many. He just, he gets mentioned, that's it. And he's such a key figure in the Old Testament. Wouldn't you think that there should be a chapter in Matthew on David? Shouldn't there? No. Because David's not the point. David's a type. He's a prototype pointing us to the one that it's all about. David's a footnote because when you get to verse 16, we read the one to whom David is pointing. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You see, the point of this genealogy is to show us that God was faithful to his promise to David to make him a forever kingdom. And Jesus is that king who sits on David's throne forever. And in this way, David is a bridge. He points us to the one who not only 
fulfills the promise of God, but continues to sit on that throne, ruling God's people eternally. Good news point. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 to 33. Speaking to Mary about what is about to take place. Here's the word of the Lord. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. God promised David a kingdom. And he kept that promise when he set Jesus on the throne at his resurrection and ascension. And of his kingdom, there is no end. This is why we talk about kingdom first, kingdom disciples, society, church. This is why kingdom's key. This is why kingdom is vital. Is it's the good news of the kingdom, the rule of Jesus Christ, not just to save people, but also to reconcile, make right all things over which he sits as king and ruler. And this is why it's important in our discipleship that we bring things under the rule of Christ. Not our rule, not our sovereignty. You ready? You're not a sovereign. Try it today. Determine your end. See, if I were sovereign, I wouldn't have the sinus infection. But here's a little information for you. I didn't have an option. It landed on me somewhere, jacked me up, and here I am. The reality is, we are to bring all things under the rule of Christ. Saved by grace, live by grace, bring all things under the rule of the one that fulfills the promise to David. We also see in some other things and read about the life of David. David's a prophet. David's a prophet. David's a priest and David's a king. David, prophet, priest, and king. In these ways, David is a bridge. Let me quickly hit some things that David does. David as a prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet speaks the word of the Lord. I don't know if you recognize this or not, but David wrote a lot of books or a lot of songs in the book of Psalms. you recognize that? David's the author of inspired scripture. In that way, David fulfills the role of prophet as he speaks the word of the Lord to us. David's a priest. We read in 1 Samuel 23 that David wore the priestly garment of an ephod. That a priest wore when he entered into the presence of God. To present sacrifices and to worship the Lord on behalf of the people. And David took that ephod on himself to communicate with the Lord to find out what they were supposed to do. And we see another instance in 2 Samuel 6 where David puts the linen ephod on and not much else. And he dances a wild dance up the streets as they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. And one of his wives, the daughter of Saul, sees it and despises him for it. And David said, I will be yet more undignified than this. You ain't seen nothing yet. And David, as a priest, represents the people in worship and in petition. David's king. David was given a kingdom to rule over and people to lead. In all these ways, David is a bridge. David's the only king to fulfill these three roles. So when we come to Jesus, we're told in the ministry of Jesus, we discover that Jesus 
is the better David as the, the prophet who speaks the word of the Lord to us. John 17, Jesus said, I gave them the word you gave to me to give to them, and I have given it all to them. He spoke the word of the Lord to us. Jesus, the better David, is the priest. The priest. Not a priest, the priest. Definite article. And that Jesus goes into the holy places to offer himself before God for us, and he represents us before God forever. Jesus, the better David, is the king, the king. He's been given a kingdom, and he will return to fulfill the establishment of that kingdom and to rule over his people and his created order forever. David was a pointer to the prophet, the priest, and the king who is Jesus. Final observation before we get to some points of obedience. David kills the enemy of God's people, Goliath who threatens the people with death and slavery. Example of how we moralize the Old Testament is we take the story of David and Goliath and make it about us conquering our giants. Not the point of the story. As a matter of fact, it has absolutely nothing to do with the narrative. That is called moralizing a biblical text. Okay. Now, the reason we say this is important is because Jesus taught us in the Gospels how to read the Old Testament. Luke 24, I don't have time to do that. If you've been here long enough, I've, I've preached through Luke 24. I've taught you how to do that. Jesus taught us how to read the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches us how to read the Old Testament. You say, how? However the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament text is how we are to interpret it. Does that make sense? Like, we can't step outside the boundaries of how inspired Scripture interprets Scripture. Makes sense? Which is why in Bible study, we say Scripture interprets Scripture. Make sense? The story of David and Goliath is not about you and me slaying our giants. David kills the enemy of God's people, Goliath. You see what happened? The Philistines were sieging parts of Judah and, and the country. And they were constantly at war with the Philistines. And they had this generation of giant people who came through their lines. You read Samuel, we read there some descendants of Goliath who were pretty large. And David's, David's boys, his like 30 men, here's some cool stories. If you're a guy and you like war stories, Beniah, does anybody know who Beniah is? Beniah is the dude who goes down into the pit and takes the Egyptian spear from him and kills him with his own spear. That's in the Bible. That's awesome. That, that's what, that was David's special forces. Right? And those guys killed Goliath's descendants. You read those stories in there, but these giant, very tall people, very large. And this Goliath is coming out taunting the people of God. And you notice David's response when he comes up to the line to bring his brothers some cheese and some food from back home. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's taunting the armies of the living God. Who does he think he is? And everybody else is like, oh, I'm afraid of the giant. David's like, Pfft. we're on God's side. God's on our side. Who's this guy? David kills the enemy of God's people, Goliath, who threatens the people with death and slavery. Because you remember the deal? Goliath comes out and says, hey, you send your best warrior out here. And if I beat him, you're our slaves. If he beats me, we're your slaves. And what does David do? David goes, I'll take him on. Shepherd boy David, who's already, by the way, been anointed king in place of Saul. David comes out with his sling and his stones. 
And God in His grace causes that stone to land on the forehead of this giant. And he falls down dead. David goes over, takes his sword, beheads him. His own sword. Goliath's sword and beheads him with his own sword. He delivers the people. David's showdown with Goliath shows the faithfulness of God to save his people. And to keep his covenant with Abraham. Do you remember what God told Abraham? I'm going to make you a great nation. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will Remember that? We looked at Abraham. Don't forget Abraham. God made a promise. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name absolutely great. And those who bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I'm going to curse. And what was Goliath doing? He was cursing the Lord, taunting the armies of the living God. David recognized it. Why are you cowered down? David goes and he kills the enemy of God's people who is threatening them with death and slavery. Here's your good news point here. Jesus, the better David, kills the enemy of God's people, death and slavery, to sin and death. And he seals the covenant he made with Abraham by his own blood. Jesus is the giant crusher to whom David points. David is a type pointing us to the reality that this death and this slavery that we're threatened with now, there's going to come one who will really crush death and slavery. Death that takes us in slavery to sin. Jesus is the giant crusher. So how in the world are we supposed to obey this? Are we supposed to get some rocks and go find some giants and kill them? Or are we supposed to go not build something in obedience to God? How are we supposed to obey these texts? I'm going to give you three ways. Number one, hope in God. 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 Hope is the belief and feeling that everything will work out for God's glory and our good. And He will never sacrifice one for the other. Let me say that again. Hope is the belief and the actual feeling that everything will work out for our good and God's glory. And that He will never sacrifice one or the other. Romans 15.4. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. I want you to see this passage. I briefly mentioned this when we were at Restoration Rome for our combined service a few weeks back with the other campus. And by the way, your New Testament is absolutely loaded with nuggets like this on why God gave us the things He gave us in the Old Testament. Romans fifteen four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our Instruction that through endurance, endurance, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, might be thoroughly equipped lacking nothing. God gave us this narrative of His work in history so that through endurance, which means you've got to push. You've got to push. You've got to work hard. Which means endurance means it's difficult. Nowhere in the Bible does God promise that bringing the kingdom to bear on this earth is going to be easy. 
As a matter of fact, the continual illustration is that of warfare. That there are things that are going to have to be killed. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13 tell us that we have to put a sword to our flesh. And it's figurative, right? It's not going to go take a sword and stab yourself with it. He's talking about that part of you that wants to rise up and rebel against God. You have to kill it. There's a war going on. There's a war going on for your soul. There are a ton of allegiances that are wanting you to give in to it over the kingdom and over the people of God. And you have to go to war against it. It is hard. It is difficult. So therefore, these things were written so that through endurance, pushing, fighting, staying the course, not giving up, and then what? Through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we take a look at David, and there's some instruction in David's life. He points us to Jesus, but there's also some positive instruction on endurance. I don't know if you realize this or not, but once David was anointed king, it took a few years for God to finish off Saul. And David had to endure persecution at the hands of Saul before he actually took the throne. And when he took the throne, it was only over Judah. And only after seven more years did the entire kingdom come to him. We want to give up after three days. We want to give up after a week or a year. And the reality here is, those of us who are in Christ, we have the narrative of God in history that we might have hope. That belief, that feeling that God will work for my good and His glory and He will never sacrifice one for the other. Meaning, He will not sacrifice my good for His glory and He won't sacrifice His glory for my good. They both go together because we're the people of God. We're the descendants of Abraham by faith and therefore I will bless you. I will take care of you. You'll be my people. So therefore Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and I'll take care of the needs. I guarantee you, our generation, our people, we don't know how to seek the kingdom first. We seek everything above verse 33 in Matthew 6. We seek our food, our clothing. We seek all of our comfort. We seek all these things. And we want them. We go hard after them. We give it 50, 60 hours a week trying to pad our nest. And if there's leftover time, we'll give Jesus some seeking of the kingdom. Maybe Sunday morning for an hour and a half. So the question becomes for us, when we seek the kingdom, we seek Jesus' rule over us in every corner of my life. Right? So we look at lives like David and we recognize, man, he did some things very poorly, but there's some instruction in his life on things he did really well. David loved God. You see, the way God worked in people's lives in the Bible should point us to the reality that this is also how God works in our lives today. I'll tell you a quick story. This just happened this week as we were at Snowbird. You know where we work. Um, God's opened the door for us to work and, and, and send our people all over the world. But we've tried to focus in one particular place. And the more we focused in that one particular place, the more God has raised up people out of our fellowship to go to other places. So we're trying to make sense of how domain engagement shifts our mission strategy. Right? But that one particular place you're very familiar with, and this is recorded, so I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to put it out on the interwebs. Um, some bad things happened a few years ago at one of our partners at a, at a hospital. Right? And there's also a school in the capital city that myself and another person were in country to visit as we're there doing some work. 
Well, as soon as that bad stuff happened at the hospital there, and some of our partners were killed, the school shut down. When God's good grace and His good timing, He shut that school down. And that school had to go out of existence. In the meantime, one of the workers at that school had only been there four months. And had to find another place to work. So God in His good grace put them in South Korea this past year. Well, this person just happens to be a former Snowbird Outfitters staff person. And that person just happened to be in town this week and happened to come by camp this week. And the story gets better. Our person from our church who lives in Delhi teaching at school, domain engagement, right? You know, this, you know, you know Kendra. We can say that she's a school teacher. She teaches school. But she lives in a neighborhood full of our people making disciples. Well, guess who just happens to be attending church at Red Oak Church at Snowbird tonight? Kendra. And guess who's just going to happen to be there tonight? This worker from our country. And in an hour and a half conversation, we got to make connections from Korea to Delhi, working with people from our country. Now, you're going, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making the connections. Think this through for a second. God working in history through difficulty, through hardship, so that you have to endure and push through stuff. Sent a person from our country who's teaching school to another country. A place and had them come back to the place we were this week. And another person from our fellowship being at the same place at the same time coming together. And this person in Korea beginning to recognize I can still work with the people God called me to work with in another city. Teaching, doing the job. I'm called to do and be in that city, meeting those people's needs. And God brought it all together at a lunchtime, at a table in Andrews, North Carolina. Listen, there is absolutely, and I'm having to be very vague, but I'm hoping you're following me here a little bit. The only way that can happen is because God works in our lives in history. These two people don't know each other, but they have the same profession, love the same people, want to work with the same people from the same country, but don't have access to that country anymore. So therefore, as educators, they're coming from two different places, can work in the same location, working with our people in a different country, in a different city, while they're engaging their domain. And they didn't know each other until this weekend. And it just so happened that the person, the only person on the planet that could have connected them was me. And I happened to be there while they happened to be there. And, and even cooler, as I was doing some ministry with another couple off-site, this one person said, oh, this person's here who also worked in your country. You need to meet them. And my wife was having lunch with her the day before. And so it just converged in that moment. Why? Because that's what God does in our lives. Here's the point. Have hope, y'all. Have hope. Endure. Push. Push. God is working. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't quit. God prevailed for David in his life. And in like fashion, He will prevail for you in your life. Don't give up. We're sissies, man. We quit too easy. It gets hard. We quit. It's difficult. We bow down and quit. Put a spine of steel in your back. Stand up and endure. Why? Because God is at work. The one who orchestrates history. Do you really believe God can put it in the hearts of people to do things that they didn't want to do that will benefit you for His glory and your good? Do you really believe that? The Bible teaches that. 
God put it in the heart of pagan kings to bless His people and send them back in 70 years like He promised He said He would. And if God can put it in the hearts of people who don't believe, how much more people who believe? God's at work. So have hope. Have great hope. Secondly, exercise your faith. Faith in God is our grounds for hope. If this is how God is working in the world, then we have no excuse for letting our faith in God dry up on the vine. Expect the kingdom to come. Go seek after the kingdom and be willing to give up everything inferior for the superior. The problem is, for most of us, we are so tied to the inferior temporary that we can't imagine Jesus could have better for me. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not acting foolish. Faith is reason to trust in God. Faith is not rejecting provision for some perceived other way. Exercise your faith. Trust God. Let go of some things. Be willing to pursue some things you can't see because Jesus said so. Have hope. Exercise your faith. My hunch is God's probably at work in some of you in ways that you don't talk about because it's uncomfortable. And because the implications are you can't imagine a way God could be your deliverer. So because you can't imagine it, you refuse to let it go and let him do it. And if I've learned anything from the life of George Mueller, it is do not ever deliver yourself. Trust in the Lord. If he says jump, you say, yes, sir, how high? And trust that he is able to make all grace abound to you in all things everywhere at all times. Matter of fact, you read the Hebrews chapter 11 is just some examples of people who live like that. Faith isn't foolish, it's reason to trust in God. Now I promise you this, if you act with trust in God, people will say you're foolish. Who can't see the kingdom? And who don't have eyes to see and ears to hear? Matter of fact, some of your greatest criticism might be from some people who say they're in the kingdom. Faith is acting on God's Word in application to your life as you walk with the Spirit in covenant relationship with the local church. So live by faith, like David did. Can you imagine walking out to face a giant as the youngest of a whole bunch of brothers with a sling and some rocks? Because God made a promise to your forefathers a long time ago that He would bless His people. And you could stand there and go, how dare he curse the armies of the living God? Does he not realize who we are? Poor fool. Pity the fool. And that's trust. That's God made a promise and he's going to keep his promise. So I'm going to step out there. If he kills me, he kills me. But regardless, God's going to bless our... Because we're his people. Why would I not step out there and get after it? That needs to be the attitude of every Christian in this room. I'm a descendant of Abraham by faith in Christ. And as a result, the blessing of the kingdom of God is on my life. And I will step out and I'll go hard in the paint all day. And if they kill me, they kill me. But you know this. I will not stand back and not advance the kingdom. Because God will deliver me or He'll take me home. And either way, I win. That's why Paul said the stuff he said to live as Christ and to die as gain. Can't kill me. Can't beat me. It's good.
Live by faith. Finally, become a living sacrifice. Paul tells us what worship is. I've been hitting this for several weeks because I've said this for years. I intend to make us a singing church. If it's the last thing I do, if I crawl in the grave, Jesus lets me live to 90 and I crawl in the grave, you're going to be a singing church. It's going to happen. I know we're cerebral people. Educators is just kind of our makeup as a fellowship. We're very, mm, yes, mm, mm. We, we think. But that has to connect to your heart at some point. David danced naked before the Lord. I know that's weird. He put on the ephod and ran up the street naked, dancing before the Lord. Please keep your clothes on. Do not do that. We're in a different place in time. But you, but you can't sing. Paul told us what worship looks like. And it is singing with your mouth. It is singing songs. But the song only matters when it's backed up by life. Which is why Paul defines for us worship in Romans 12, 1-3 as a living sacrifice. You know what sacrifice is, right? He's calling on this Old Testament system. You slaughter the animal, put it on the altar. It has nothing left of itself. It is completely given over. It's completely given up. And so Paul says, you, as a result of God's grace, you now therefore be a living sacrifice. All things given up, but you're still alive. In other words, I don't count anymore. My will doesn't count anymore. My desires don't count anymore. All my desires are God's desires. Paul says, that's your spiritual worship. And when you live a life like that, you can walk in here. When these songs go up, the voice will go up. Because living sacrifices sing. That's just what they do. Go read the Psalms. They just sing. They just do it. I would say this. If you can't sing, chances are you're not a living sacrifice. You've got a chemos. You've got a milkum. You've got, you've got a bale somewhere that rules your life. And you go lay down sacrifices to that thing, whatever it happens to be. But God forbid I walk up in this place and be a little undignified before the Lord. So I want to invite you today to live by hope, live by faith, and be a living sacrifice to the Lord because we have ample historical evidence of God's work and God's people. And our lives, just what happens in here needs to be a little tiny, little tiny speck of what's going on out here, but it can be that speck and it should be rich. So I want to say to you this morning, as I pray, I want you to stand and I want you to sing to the Lord. Because that's the only fitting thing left for us to do. Anything less than that would be wasting Jesus in this moment. He has brought us to this moment to worship Him. And I want to say to you, if you're in this room, and and for the first time the lights have turned on, Jesus makes sense, and you want to follow Jesus, find somebody that you know, talk to them, come see myself or one of the pastors will be in the back and would love to talk to you about Jesus. But those of you who know Christ, sing to Him, worship Him, make much of Him. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. That you be glorified, that you be exalted in our worship. Um, Got to pray that you'd, um, yeah, you'd do that. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you will, uh, again, knock down all those little things that, that vie for our affection and, uh, and help us to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. Lord, I pray that you use the life of David to instruct us and teach us and point us to Jesus, who is the better David. And that our affection would be in Christ. And the example we have that you gave us in David, we could imitate some of that as we trust in Christ. Did you pull that off this morning? Lord, I pray you put it in the hearts of your people to sing. Jesus, I know you're able to do that. You spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and he had to obey. So I pray you'd speak to hearts right now, Holy Spirit, and cause them to obey you.
May your people lay down a sacrifice of praise that is pleasing to you, but full of joy for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.